0: 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 5, 12 to 14, the last few verses, but it would be helpful if you have your Bible with you uh, to be ready to flick back and forth. We are going to fly over the book of 1 Peter again, uh, as I think Peter wants us to do. Uh, it seems that the way he concludes here is an intro, or is, is a way of saying, now remember what I've said, go back and think about what I've said. So let's read, then I'll pray again, and then we'll unpack this uh, verse by verse. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written ble- briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet, greet one another with a, ho- with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you. ...who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for guidance. Holy Father, we thank you so much that we can come in worship of you. We thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us by your word... ...and revealed to us our duty how we ought to live in this world. We know we have fallen short, but we know we have a great Saviour who is lifting us up. So, Father, as we come to look at this wonderful letter, may it equip us and encourage us. May it go with us beyond uh, what we have done preaching it, but would we recall it over and over again in our own minds and to one another. May it be lasting words upon our mind that become actions and, uh, actions at our hands and our feet. So, Lord, we ask... For your Holy Spirit to give us clarity, encouragement, and to challenge us to live faithfully in the midst of a world that is going to harass and persecute and slander your people until the day that you come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 2 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, Peter finishes in such a way that he encourages us to think about faithfulness because of the faithfulness of Silvanus, his brother. He encourages us to think about the true grace of God, which we are to stand firm in, which is where we'll spend most of our time. He once again mentions the word chosen about the chosen people in Babylon as an encouragement to the seven churches that he's writing to, that you alone are not chosen, but God has even chosen people in Babylon, which has connotations, and we'll get to what that means uh, in a few moments. He calls us to love one another for a final time, which he has mentioned over and over again in his letter, that there is no excuses for a church that has not love for each other. And finally, he lands his letter home with the reminder of the certainty of peace that we have with God through Christ and with one another because of Christ. So essentially, we are going to do a flyover of 1 Peter again and and teach and encourage, because I think the way Peter ends here is for us to be people like James says, who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. He wants you to remember this word, implant it in your mind so that you can stand firm in the true grace of God. Peter is, uh, has been, one of his great themes is that he will preach the gospel, he will talk about suffering and he'll say it will change you. He will always do this pattern. He will preach the gospel, he'll talk about suffering and he will say it will change you. So over the time of 1 Peter, maybe you would like to think about the things that you have had to change in your life. Because Peter will talk about the change not only in our actions, but also in our thoughts. To gird up the loins of our mind, to change the way we think about what we are going through. He not only will talk about the small things that we need to change, small actions and small thoughts, but the big things. Our whole relationship in our household maybe need changing. The way we relate as husband and wives... The roles that we take on, the way we relate to our governor uh, or government may need to change. We We may need a change around the view of our culture. What do we view? How do we view culture? And how do we stand against culture faithfully? Ultimately, Peter makes a good case that a Christian is not someone who's sitting back passively waiting for change, but a Christian is one who is taking the step forward to see change in all spheres of their life. They're taking the steps forward. A Christian is not a passive waiter of change, but an active participant and proactive in their thoughts, in their actions, in the house of God, in the household at home, and in the political spheres. We are called to be on the front foot of change as Christians. We are called to be those who love change. So if it's the true grace of God that brings change in our life, then whether we are an infant in the faith or a 90-year-old man, we need to stand firm. And if we stop standing firm, change stops happening. It doesn't matter what age we get to. I've quoted, I think, many times before, my Grace's grandmother who said she was in her 90s uh, and she said, I'm not done yet. There's still change in me that needs to be happen ha- Happening. And I pray for each and every one of you and for myself that you will stand firm in the true grace of God and that you may be blessed to live to the 90s and say, and I still need change. I'm not there yet. So let's look verse by verse as we continue to do, but of course, we'll be jumping back through as we think about the true grace of God. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting. And declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Sylvanus is likely Silas, who we see in the Book of Acts uh, journeyed with Luke often and Paul, uh, and he is clearly writing the words for Peter. Not everyone could write; not everyone knew how to uh, how, how to spell or how to write their language down on paper. So we've got Sylvanus writing it down for Peter, and he is described as being a faithful brother. A wonderful description that we should be encouraging one another in. Let's be faithful brothers and sisters to one another. Paul says that he has written briefly. Uh, you may or may not think this is brief. I don't know what your perspective is, but uh, according to John, uh, the things that Jesus did or the gospel that Jesus is about could fill, uh, there's not enough room on earth for the books that it could fill. And that is true. Uh, The C.S. Lewis says the gospel is uh, small enough for a child to uh, paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And that is what we need to remember about the gospel. Although Peter has written to us about the true grace of God, he he has not exhausted the gospel. We could go to books like Romans and see that there is more to learn of the gospel, the true grace of God. But at the same time, he says these two words, he has exhorted or is exhorting and declaring. And I think it's worth pausing and thinking about uh, these two words, because it's important to know that, that what we are doing with the gospel should never be to accuse and to chop down people. Our aim with the gospel should never be to bring death, but always be to bring life. Uh, the gospel, if we are using it correctly, is there to strongly encourage and urge. Like Paul said uh, in, uh, in Acts, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he through tears night and day admonished the Ephesus church. He through tears admonished the Ephesus church. Paul is a man who was, who was hard with his words Uh, Even Peter will say that in 2 Peter, that some things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. Uh, He was a hard man, yet when he was with people, he was there weeping with them and pleading with them to change the way they were living or to embrace the true grace of God. Which brings us to think about the way we use the Word of God. We use the Word of God to encourage, strongly urge, and to declare life to one another. It has to be always life. 2 Timothy 4, I think this is a great foundation for all of our discipleship, for the way the church should function. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience and teaching. So the word is there for us to correct, rebuke and encourage in God's time, not in your time. Complete patience and teaching. People may not change or you may not change as quick as you would like because it is God who brings the growth. Therefore, the Word of God or the verses of Scripture don't become like bullets we shoot at one another, but rather uh, a tender, uh, hopefully, with tears and gentleness in enabling and encouraging people to be built up in the faith. A bullet destroys and brings death. But Jesus says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So although Peter wrote some hard things, Peter told us that anxiety uh, is the opposite of humility in his word. He he worded it differently, but essentially he ties in humility and anxiety together and says that if we are anxious, we are therefore being pride towards God. That's a hard thing to hear, but he does it to bring life to you. Because if he doesn't say that, you are going to die in anxiety, and that's not what the scriptures want. It's not what Paul wants. It's not what Christ wants for you. So, when we are thinking about the way we use the gospel towards one another, the true grace of God, are we using it as bullets that destroy, or an exaltation that strongly urges and builds up and brings life? Do you want people to leave the church hurt and feeling broken, or do you want people to grow? That is what we are striving towards. That is what Peter wants. Peter would encourage, encourage, encourage for multiple chapters, and then suddenly he would put a warning, and he'd say, consider these things. Examine yourself. That is what we need to be like. We need to encourage, 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 and then with gentleness, with love, examine ourselves and encourage each other to examine themselves. So he's exhorting and declaring the true grace of God, which we are to stand firm in. You're going to hear me say that multiple times, and you may hear the kids whisper, we're going to stand firm in it. Uh, God willing, they will all the days of their life stand firm in the true grace of God. Amen. Uh, and we are going to look, what is the true grace of God according to Peter, and what, how do we stand firm in it? Well, firstly, that passage we have recited most weeks of 1 Peter uh, over the last six or so months is really the foundation of the true grace of God. So 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Turn to it if you have your Bibles, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I love with all my heart these few verses throughout the Scriptures that just summarize the beauty of the Gospel for us. And this is magnificent. It reminds us that it is because of God and Christ that we are saved, that it is through His great mercy. He, He caused the new birth to come about and we are born into a living hope, a lasting hope. It will never perish. So we were we were essentially spiritually stillborn. We were spiritually stillborn and God has brought us to life spiritually in Christ. So Christ was the one who suffered the death that we deserve. He was actually buried and He actually rose to life and we now stand in Him like, like, uh, like a nation would stand uh, under their king in the old days. We are now clothed in the colours of Christ. We hold the flag of Christ and we stand under the kingship of Christ. And since Christ is now Im- immortal, uh, he, he always was, but because He has, de- he has resurrected, we have a, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven, you- heaven for you. This is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God for us, that you have nothing to do with your salvation, not even the endurance of it. Because, but, because it also says here, that by God's power, you're being guarded through faith. Who's guarding you? God. Who gave you the faith? God. God has everything everything to do with your salvation, and we are to stand firm in this. How do we not stand firm in it? By choosing to take on the work ourselves. By choosing to take on good deeds that earn our way to heaven. To To be someone who thinks that every time they sin, God's giving them a second chance to try and fulfill the law and then I fail that again so I get another chance to try and fulfill the law. No, you have fulfilled the law. Even when you sin, you have fulfilled the law because of Christ Jesus our Lord who fulfilled the law on our behalf. You're not just getting repeated second chances to try again at fulfilling the law. It doesn't work like that. You're washed clean and you are righteous in the eyes of God. So the true grace of God is learning to apply Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to every situation in our life. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to every situation in our life. When, When the Spirit comes and speaks to us through the Word of God, or through another brother or sister, it will always bring life. Its result will always be the resurrection. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Therefore, when the Spirit moves in our heart, we will always bring life. But the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, as Cody pointed out last week from 1 Peter, he always brings death. And weirdly, they actually start at the same point. Conviction of sin. Or, for the devil, it's actually accusation. The devil will masquerade as the Holy Spirit and will accuse you of sin. And the Holy Spirit will come and convict you of sin. And it's really hard to tell the difference at times. But the end result will reveal what the diff- who it was that was speaking to us. The Holy Spirit will always bring life. The devil will always bring death. So when we become aware of sin, whether we've been accused by the devil or the Holy Spirit's brought it about by a brother or sister or through his word, however it may be, we are to repent, confess and repent. Confess is to bring it to light, maybe to a brother or sister, to the Lord. Repent is to say, I'm turning away from it. That is to put it to death. That's the death part of death, burial and resurrection. Then we are to believe the truth of God's promises and we are to bury it under the weight of God's word. That's the burial of death, burial and resurrection. And then we are to act. This is being proactive, not passive. We are to act upon the righteousness of God and do the opposite of whatever it was we were doing, the sin that we were doing. We should now go and live the other way. This is the resurrection, living in the newness of life that Christ has given us. When we come to sin, death, burial and resurrection is the way we deal with all things. You see, the accuser will come and he will accuse you of sin. Maybe, maybe even a Christian will accuse you of sin. And it won't lead to life. It will lead you to condemnation. It'll leave you to feeling that, like you've committed the unforgivable sin. It'll leave you to isolate yourself from the church. It'll leave you to shut off from people and close yourself down. It'll leave you to turn away from the Word. This is not from God. That brings death. It'll always bring death to you. So if we are of the Spirit and if the Spirit is coming to us, we can be sure that the Spirit will always bring with rebuke and correction the true grace of God which results in life. Death, repentance and confession, burial, belief upon the weight of God's Word that buries all these lies, all these sins underneath it and action by living out the righteousness of God, the life that Christ gives us in the power of the Holy Spirit. The simple question we can ask ourselves is Was I trying to bring life from this conversation? Was I trying to bring life from this conversation that I'm having with a brother or sister? Maybe the conversation that's going on in your head. was Was this trying to bring life to me? If it's not trying to bring life, it's not of God. So the true grace of God stands firm in the gospel knowing the death, burial and resurrection and knowing how to apply it to our life. The true grace of God also rejoices in the gospel in the midst of various trials. Following straight on from our uh, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, we see in 6 and 7 it say, uh, In this, in this, what we just read, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the true grace of God. In the midst of various trials, so that is every trial that you can come to mind right now. Slander or sickness, marriage problems, bad neighbors, financial strain, whatever it is you can think of, rejoice in the gospel you are told how you are to think as a Christian. You don't get to walk around in self-pity. As a Christian, you are told to gird up the loins of your mind, Peter will say that a bit later on, and go to war against the things that come in. If you want to self-pity about your sickness or slander, or the situation that you're in, you are in sin, and you are to come to God and rejoice in the true grace of the gospel. So when various trials get us down, we turn to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and we remind ourselves that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Standing firm in the true grace of God means rejoicing in the midst of hardship. I love the way Paul does this in Philippians. He does, he does the whole rejoice, I say it again, rejoice. It's almost like he says, rejoice pauses for a bit, waits for someone to complain, and then says, I say it again, rejoice. I reckon we should do a bit more of that in the church. Rejoice. No, no, I say it again, rejoice, right? No more complaining. The Israelites complained in the wilderness for 40 years, though God gave them food and uh, manna from heaven. Christians are not complaining people, they're rejoicing people. If you are standing firm in the true grace of God, you are not complaining about your situation, but you're bringing your situation to God and demanding that your heart rejoice in Him. And if you don't believe me, look at Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a beautiful prayer of David who says to himself, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. But let me read you five verses of it, Uh, three verses of it. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in process- procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, he is not in a light trial. He is saying, my tears have been my food. In other words, he isn't eating. He is so grieved, so suffered, that he is just like sobbing constantly and eating his tears. That's his food at the moment. And in the midst, he's remembering the time when he used to lead the worship band. Better better than a band. It was like a whole army. He was... He was, he's thinking back. He goes, I remember when I led the procession to the house of God and the shouts of praise. I want to be back there. I want to be back worshiping God. So what's he do? Counsel his mind. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And then the certainty, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That is what it looks like to gird up the loins of our mind and to go to war against our self-pity and our anxiety and whatever thought may plague us. We are to say no to the devil. And yes, I will rejoice in the true grace of God. Your self-pity will only lead to death. So standing firm in the true grace of God is to rejoice in the midst of whatever trial comes our way. Standing firm in the true grace of God is is living God's way. I don't really have a passage from 1 Peter. It's more like the whole letter of 1 Peter here, but from, from pretty much the end of chapter 2 to chapter 5, we see Peter telling us what righteousness looks like in all different spheres of our life, whether it's uh, the sphere of loving our brothers and sisters in the household of church, God, uh, the church, whether it's how we submit to elders or how elders are meant to act how wives and husbands are meant to act to one another the roles that they are meant to take on how we are meant to live under a pagan government uh, these are all the righteousness of God God has given us counsel and righteousness in how we are meant how we are to live in the midst of a pagan world so stand firm in the true grace of God uh, one of one of the hard things we've seen over the last 20 or so years, is this trendy phrase, incarnational mission. And essentially it comes from uh, the idea that our mission to the world should replicate the incarnation of Christ. Christ uh, gave up his heavenly body, took on, his, took on an earthly body, he became flesh, that's what incarnation means, and our mission should take on that. Uh, it became a very trendy mission strategy. I don't have much of a problem with it, I think we should take on the way we should take on some characteristics of the world. A missionary should not go to another country and not learn the language. That's, that's not fair. Um, uh, there's this trend at the moment uh, that I was talking to Grace's dad about where American uh, female missionaries are going to Pakistan dressed in jeans and a shirt. The problem is over there, prostitutes wear jeans and a shirt, so no one's talking to them. Uh, you should probably study the culture a bit more than that if you're going to be... Uh, a missionary. So you should have some form of incarnation in the way you go, the language, probably the way they dressed, things that are going to be a barrier. But other than that, we are not meant to take, we aren't to take on the culture of our society, we are meant to bring the culture of Christ to our society. This is what this word paideia, which we've been hearing a bit about through the education of our children, paideia is about culture and bringing the culture of Christ we are to bring the righteousness of Christ with the culture of Christ. Uh, we are to bring Christ's standard of modesty. We are to bring Christ's standard of parenting, Christ's standard of singleness, Christ's standard of whatever it may be. Uh, we see this in Peter 1. We see, 1 Peter, we see it in uh, 2 Peter as well when he refers to Lot and Noah being heralds of righteousness. When we go forth to the world to stand forth in forth Stand firm in the true grace of God is to uphold the righteousness of God. So I've said multiple times throughout 1 Peter, there have been different battles fought throughout history that the church has to fight. Battles around theology, battles around the divinity of Christ, battles around salvation by faith alone through grace. Um, And our battle today is not particularly a theology of Christ or salvation, but it's a theology of men and women and the household and family. This is the war or the battle, the war Christ will win, the battle we are fighting today is the battle for the family. Uh, so when Peter talks about the suffering that these churches experienced, the suffering that we are going to experience is going to be around gender, masculinity, femininity, and the household, um, family. Uh, so I encourage you to stand firm in the true grace of God, is to stand firm upon the creation mandate, which we see in Genesis 1-3, to and not move from that for the sake of cultural engagement, right? To not move from that for the sake of cultural engagement. We don't need to be apologetic for the way God has created the world. We need to stand firm in those things. Sure, that probably needs some, a lot more added to it, but we don't have time today. Go back and listen to other sermons and you'll hear me uh, speak more about the details of that. So that is the true grace of God, and I believe that as we continue through these last few verses, which are going to be a lot shorter, don't get too worried, uh, we're going to still see the true grace of God here. Verse 13, um, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Uh, So Babylon is long gone. Uh, Babylon ceased to be a nation uh, before Uh, well before the Greeks, and we are multiple empires past uh, the Greeks, or or one empire past the Greeks, but there was multiple before them. So we see Babylon is actually not a nation, so Peter is not in Babylon. Uh, he, He says she. She, he's not talking about a particular woman, he's talking about the church. The church who is at Babylon is likewise chosen. There's two options for who Babylon is, Rome or Jerusalem. Uh, If it's Jerusalem, this is a very offensive statement. We know in Revelation that Jerusalem is referred to as Babylon, uh, but at the moment we're unsure. Peter was in both for a long period of time. Uh, Either way, what he is saying is a great encouragement to us because he says here that if you are in a pagan nation like Babylon, God is still choosing people. Isn't that incredible? No longer is it about Israel, the only chosen nation, but even in a pagan nation, God is still choosing people. Uh, last year, Martin Niles uh, from the ACL, sadly, he's no longer with the ACL, uh, but Martin Niles did a series around the country called Babylon, uh, and really saying that our country is Babylon. We are in a pagan nation, a uh, an unrighteous nation, a nation that stands actively against God. Uh, but we can be encouraged because God has chosen people even in Babylon. So what do we do when we're living in Babylon? Uh, we said back in my very first or second sermon of 1 Peter, uh, I looked at Jeremiah and what Israel did in uh, Babylon, or what Israel was called to do in Babylon. So Jeremiah 29, 4-7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jer- Jerusalem to Babylon, This is a great encouragement to us. We are not meant to be passive, sitting back, waiting for the kingdom of heaven, but wherever we find ourselves, we should be fruitful, industrious in our city and seek the welfare of the city we live in because that is where we'll find our welfare as well. What are we to do? Be faithful people in our society, be active members of society, work hard. Uh, Build the city for the glory of God and the praise of His name, uh, so that we may see God's kingdom come through many Christians being active in this city. So when we read verse 13, just be encouraged that we are chosen uh, even in the midst of a pagan nation. Standing firm also in the gospel, in the true grace of God is to love the church, verse 14. I believe this last statement is the last time Peter will encourage the church to love one another. You can't get past this in the Christian church. Jesus said, it is by the way you love one another, they will know that you are are my disciples. Paul says it, John says it, uh, Peter says it multiple times. We are to be those who do the best at loving each other better than any community that is out there, any uh, group of, of people in the world, we should be better at it. And it comes down to every single thing that we do together. The way we serve one another, the way we serve the sick, the way we serve um, each other when we are uh, building each other up through correction, the way we endure with each other through conflict, the way we greet each other. We are terrible at this as Christians, uh, as Australians, Australian Christians are terrible at greeting anyone, uh, and I'm happy to go on record for that. We are just too cool and too laid back. It's like when people walk in, it's just, it's just like, yeah, eh. I've seen, I saw them yesterday, oh, I saw them this morning, I don't need to say hello, uh, but, but Peter and Paul is saying that the way we greet one another will reveal how we love one another. Our greetings say something to the world about what we care for this person how we care for them. Now, uh, the kiss is cultural, 100% it's cultural, um, because I do not want uh, physical touch, not a fan of that. Uh, But our culture, you could give a firm handshake with eye contact, Uh, you could have a hearty hello and a wave, Uh, but we should be better at being excited about seeing one another. He's not the only place that that we see this. Uh, Paul says we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, That means pure. Uh, with no I- I- immoral motives behind it. Uh, it-, it, may be, it may be a hug. Whatever it is, uh, we should care for one another so much that when we see one another, we're excited to be around each other. Our hallows speak something about the true grace of God. And if we're going to stand in the true grace of God, let our hallow uh, be more than apathy or something worse. Let it be uh, love. Uh, in in a sincere way that says, I can't wait to spend time with you. Finally, he finishes his letter with this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, What a great uh, statement to say. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace uh, means freedom, safety. Freedom and safety. We see Jesus say this in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is working towards freedom and safety for the whole of His church. He is bringing us into the promised land where we will find absolute rest. Uh, we need to remember the peace of God in our life, in our relationships and in this church, knowing that Christ brought peace for us with His blood and His his death. So I encourage you to stand firm in the true grace of God by recalling the gospel in suffering, by remembering the death, burial, and the resurrection, by preaching the righteousness of God in this pagan nation, by remembering that we are to love one another in all things, always to the very end of the age, by greeting, by serving, by caring, by whatever it may be, we are to love one another and we are to recall the peace that we all have in Christ because he is the Prince of Peace. This has been the letter of 1 Peter and I look forward to one day preaching it again.